Welcome to the RSP cast. This is a second episode of the quick game this season, or maybe officially the first since we had one the week before the season started. But, you know, it's my pleasure to be able to, you know, get to chop this up with Mark Schofield. And Mark, you know, just always great to have you here. Always great to be here with you, buddy. Um, you know, we I think if you and I were able to do this every single day, we would. People might get sick of us at that point, but I think we'd still do it anyway. Um, but it's great to catch up with you. It's great to do these shows with you. I'm always looking forward to these. Um, and, yeah, I can't wait to sort of dive in and tell the people why Nick Mullins is the best quarterback on the 49ers roster. Well, why don't you do it? Tell us yeah, why. I think I will. Look, and, and people that know me, people that know us, people that know these shows, know that I don't really delve into it. We both don't really delve into the world of the hot take. Like, that's not who we are. Like, I'm – I'm Mr. Like lukewarm to cold take. Like, <laughs> I don't go out on limbs. I don't get over my skis or anything like that. But I'm ready to say the Mullins is the best quarterback on their roster. And you know this this isn't just a oh wow he carved up the New York Giants thing. This dates back to years ago when Garoppolo got hurt and he had to start because C.J. Beathard was ineffective. And what I saw that year made me right over at one of those places I write for that Mullins was the guy for the post Tom Brady Patriots that if you watch Nick Mullins you see the reason why Kyle Shanahan is excited about him what begged off trade offers for him the stuff that maybe doesn't matter so much at the quarterback position anymore we're going to see that tonight with Brett Rippon um you know accuracy manipulation process and speed all the little things all the small things those are the things that Nick Mullins does well you know, and you saw that when he made his first start against the Raiders on a primetime game, the catch and run touchdown by George Kittle that he had in that game. It was a three by two formation. He had to move the middle linebacker away from the guy he wanted to throw to, who's going to open to the three receiver side, which is George Kittle. He does that with his eyes, throws a slant route on time, in rhythm, perfect placement, leads to what yardage after the catch because that's a quarterback stat. It's a 71 yard catch and run touchdown. Like, Kyle Shanahan has a prototype at the quarterback position. Accurate, smart, efficient, quick release, can move people with their eyes and can anticipate throws. Garoppolo is that. Mullins is that. But I think right now Mullins is the better quarterback. So, yeah, I think he's the best quarterback on their roster. That's interesting, you know. It's funny because somebody asked me that question. My first answer was no. But okay. but I'm I can understand that because for me I think it is because I – I like Jimmy Garoppolo a little bit more as an athlete, um, yeah, and, and that's and, and that may give him the slider slightest edge. But as a passer, I agree with you. I think Nick Mullins has more promise than Jimmy Garoppolo as a passer because Jimmy Garoppolo, while maybe he has a better arm, maybe he has better mobility, um, Jimmy Garoppolo has inherent flaws that we've talked about numerous times. You know, in terms of him turtling against cover um, pressure. Uh, you know, him trying to avoid pressure at all costs to the point that he alters the accuracy of his throws um, to the fact that he seems to short circuit in pressure situations, um, you know, in big games. And so there's some there are enough things there that you, you look at that in combination and say, well, Mullins has Mullins hasn't had those situations yet. But we know that he's better against pressure. We know that he doesn't turtle and we know that. 
Um, you know, we, we know what, what Garoppolo is, and maybe there's a ceiling to that that Mullins could surpass. So I'd say, yeah, today I'd still say Garoppolo's a better quarterback, but if I were to pick between the two, I can understand why teams would be wanting to trade for Mullins and see what they can develop there. So I'm with yeah. you. And I can understand why Shanahan doesn't want to give them all. You yeah. know, because you're seeing it now. You know, Garoppolo's dinged. You've got a guy that you can go out, run your offense with, be successful as an offense in one football games. And that's what you want. He's like the ideal backup quarterback, but I think there's a starter ceiling there. But we move on, though, yeah. because there's a guy that is getting some attention, a guy that a team felt comfortable moving on from at a running back position. That's James Robinson. Matt, I defer to you first. You're the running back guy. What do you see this guy? What are his long-term prospects? I mean, I think he has a legit long-term um, potential in this league as it, at the very least as a regular contributor. I mean, at least as like a Tim Hightower type of player. And I don't mean that in terms of skills, just in terms of like role, which means he can often be a starter and a good starter for a team. How often will he remain that starter? I think we need to see the rest of this year to really determine that. So far... You know, when he has a crease, he hits it hard. He's very he's got terrific burst for his size. Yeah. And, you know, he's his passing game work has been fine. You know, that's been actually um a really nice aspect of his game. I still haven't seen him tested a lot in terms of blitz pickup and pass protection, but in terms of running and catching the ball, he's been just fine. Um, you know, like the low low center of gravity, all of that. And he's handled zone runs okay. That was where I was a little worried about him in college. Wasn't sure he had all that. Then he might be a little too one-dimensional. But, yeah, I'm sold on the fact that he's a legit NFL player. And, again, you know, this goes back to the point that we often make is that, you know, running back to the shooting guards of the of the NFL and the fact that you can get a guy off the street and he can probably give you good production. And there are a lot of guys that may not even be, like, high on your depth chart who could actually – play for your team and be a long-term guy and if they get a shot to prove themselves they they can wind up sticking higher up on the depth chart than you originally intended and i think that's the case for james robinson yeah i'd agree with all that i mean i was impressed with what we saw from him against miami um, liked what he did out of the backfield catching the football i think i saw two instances where he had to sort of handle blitz pickup and pass protection responsibilities and seemed to handle it functionally well um, not a situation where I think you'd want to have to feel like you have to take him off the field on third and seven. I think you can trust that he can pick up the blitz if he needs to. Um, I did certainly notice, you know, both in watching him against Miami and even back to his days in college, like the zone running technique that you talked about. Like there was sometimes some indecisiveness, sometimes some lack of vision. So he does seem more comfortable gap power schemes, but it's the burst. You know, and it was interesting to hear them talk about it, Bucket Aikman, on you know during that broadcast about how teams were worried about his speed and his lawn speed, and it's like you're not drafting him to run nine routes. Like you need burst. Like what is he going to give you in the first ten? What is he going to give you in the first five? And he has that. He checks that box. So I I think there's a reason Jacksonville felt like they could move ahead with him, and I think we're seeing that already. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad for him to get the opportunity. And I'm so glad you pointed out the whole idea that burst is far more important than long speed because it's just realistic. And I think I'll, you know, we'll probably get to that question later on. But I'll, you know, I'll just add it because I'm not going to talk about running backs. But I'd say where GMs probably do make a mistake 
is that they value long speed far more than they value the short area quickness, stop, start ability, and the ability to use their feet in conjunction with their eyes. And those are all things that James Robinson does. I mean, you can see why. Like, hey, he runs a 4-4, right? That's a number. You can put it in front of the people and say, I drafted the guy with a 4-4. You draft a guy with a 4-6, you got to explain it. And sometimes you can't. So it's just easier not to have that conversation. I mean, life is probably just about avoiding difficult conversations. And that's that's a lot of what we're seeing from GMs. Yeah, that's exactly it. I wrote about that probably. I wrote about that in this week's um, or this month's newsletter when we talked about Mitchell Trubisky, when talking about Mitchell Trubisky and how they, why they draft robo quarterbacks the way they yeah. do, and and so it's that same type of thing. I guess GMs don't like word problems; they like fill no. in the blank. So they like fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, yeah. Choose so. your own answers. Multiple choice questions. Well, multiple choice is actually one of the guys who's probably multiple choice at this point is Hakeem Butler, who they tried to fill in the blank as a wide receiver yeah. in Arizona. Hakeem Butler, tight end of the Philadelphia Eagles. What do you think about that? I mean, why not? I mean, I, I, I think it makes sense in two respects. One, you have a need now at tight end if you're Philadelphia. You're a team that is struggling to get production for the wide receiver spots, is struggling to get production from your quarterback, which long-time listeners to these, you know, two chuckleheads you're listening to right now, at least I was a big once guy. And so it's been, it's been tough to watch once this year. And it's also it, it fits what he is as a football player, a big size, big frame guy that can go up and get the ball, that can work between the hash marks, that might struggle with the precise aspects of playing wide receiver, but in a way that can get minimized if you're asking him to do it against safeties and linebackers. And so I, I think it makes sense for Philadelphia. I did think it was interesting. They just basically announced it in the acquisition tweet. They were like, we've signed Hakeem Butler tight end. And everybody was like, what? Like, that's interesting. But I think it makes sense. And look, Philadelphia is in the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks situation of the season right now. And they're they're staring at 0-4 in the face. I mean, they're going to San Francisco, cross-country trip, primetime game. Even with Nick Mullins, who we just talked about, like they're staring 0-4 in the face. You might as well throw some spaghetti at the wall and just see what sticks. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Butler and – I certainly shared this again also with newsletter subscribers and people, you know, that subscribe to the rookie scouting portfolio. Um, you know, when it comes to Butler, he was he was my highest rated wide receiver in that draft class. And a lot of people ask me, well, what have you, you know, what changed? Has anything changed? Has your thoughts changed about him? Are you, you know, is there any, you know, and I've seen a lot of other draft analysts say, well, I had him that high too. And I, I need to go back and like, figure out what I saw wrong. And my answer is, what the hell are you going to go back and look at? Because, like, I mean, the, to, to be honest, I mean, this is the part about evaluation where you've got to, like, be real. And, like, here's the thing. Has he played on a football field since Iowa State? No. Right. So, you know, if Lance Zerline and Mike Renner and um, Dane Brugler saw problems with his routes... Um, I don't really care. I mean, I respect all those guys, but I don't know their process for the same reason that none of them like Nick Chubb as much as I did or Russell Wilson or Pat Mahomes or, or any other player that I may have liked more or, or less than them where they, ha- they liked them more. And we have different ways of looking at that. So it's kind of like when someone says, what have you learned from Hakeem Butler? The answer is nothing other yeah. than that, that they drafted him lower 
and that he didn't fit with what the team wanted, and neither did Andy Isabella early on. So it was kind of like, you know, when I look at Butler, I'm just still waiting to see him get on the field and see what he does. And if someone says to me, well, you've obviously messed something up if they, if, if, you know, he was, you know, he's, he's now a tight end for the Eagles that they took off the waiver wire. And I'd contend no, because I don't study off field. I don't study, you know, you know, work habits. I don't study any of that stuff that may be a contributing factor that we don't know about. And, you know, honestly, like Nick Mullins, we were watching Nick Mullins. You're just talking about him being better than Jimmy Garoppolo. Nobody, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes it takes just seeing the guy on the field and not being a good yep. fit. So Akeem Butler, the way you mentioned him, listen, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens here at best. He's a Darren Waller type of player. Another player that nobody thought was really worth a damn. Um, and he ended yeah. up, he ended up, you know, getting put in a situation where you can run a select number of routes, leverage that high level of athletic ability for those routes and pretend to be a tight end because that's yeah. really what he does. He pretends to be a tight end from the blocking standpoint. So Keem Butler, can he add 10, 15 pounds? Probably. Is he still going to be fast enough? Yeah. Can, can he run go routes, crossing routes up the seam? Can he? Can he run a stop route? He'll probably get better at the stop route. You know, will he have to deal with, you know, tight physical man coverage? No, not probably off the line, but at the catch point, which has not been the problem for him. Will he be able to catch the ball? He's had some drops, but, uh, you know, that's the type of thing I look at him and think, I can see why they want to do that. Do I think it's going to be an immediate impact type of situation? Probably not. I mean, but again, it was Darren Waller was pretending to be a tight end the first year and they put him in and you watch the tape. And I remember watching the tape heading into last year and thinking, wow, he, he, he's going to be a worthwhile guy for you to target in fantasy leagues late because it's a low, you know, it's a, a, it's basically a cheap investment with a tremendous upside if they decide to keep using them this way. And the Eagles known for using two tight ends could easily just say, fine, He's a wide receiver disguised as a tight end. Frankly, look, as we're sitting here, it just came out that John Hightower is not a practice. So the Eagles have one receiver on their 53-man roster practicing today. So they might just have to use a wide receiver at this point. That's how banged up they are. That's interesting. I would laugh if, like, I I, I would have – it would be fun to see Hakeem Butler have a good opportunity to play out, but, you know – play play well but we'll see yeah i mean we'll see i mean but look he might have to be he might have to play this sunday yeah and he and obviously if he has to play this sunday the likelihood that he understands what he's supposed to do is very slim carson wentz is going to be going line up over there you're going to run this route you know or if the safety's here do this if the say if the linebackers here do that like that he's going to be thinking on the field which should lead to misrun routes and drops. So expect to see some of that, you know, this week if he's forced onto the field and the team to be somewhat forgiving of that, knowing that the situation they've put him in. Yeah. So speaking of situations though, I mean, we've kind of danced around it, the evaluation process, not from us chuckleheads on the outside, but for these teams in the National Football League. And we've seen it, Hakeem Butler, Nick Mullins, other examples. They miss on players. So what are some of the common mistakes, Matt, you see from teams and talent evaluation for any position you choose? 
I think that the common mis- and I'm going to go with teams rather than GMs because I know our buddy John Limbarakis, you know, yeah. asked this question and shout out to John and much love back. Huge to fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I won't go with GMs because it seems like whenever I have this conversation with GM, you know, talking, having this conversation with people who've been in the NFL, and I mention GMs, we end up kind of shaking our heads and coming down to the point that it's really about ownership. Because what happens is the GM's kind of like the director at your company who has a great team of people and they do all the legwork to get something going, to get something in the direction they need to. And they do the three, six, nine months worth of work. They present it to the owner and the owner decides, you know, because he was on the golf course with a buddy or because he saw something on TV, you know, whatever, that he wants to take this in a completely different direction and completely nullify all the well-done work and research that was put into it. And now you're having to make a quick last-minute roll, kind of like Bud Adams going, Scouts, we don't care that you like Jay Cutler. We don't care whether if Norm Child liked Matt Leinart. I, I want to thumb my nose at Houston for them just letting me walk and I'm going to get their, their golden boy, Vince Young. You know, it's like that's, that's the scenario that you often see. So what I would say the common mistakes that are made as a result of this and it rests on the owner is that ownership tends to value a very PR-oriented approach. What do the fans think is a smart choice? And when I think of that with quarterbacks, I call it robo quarterbacks, but it's like tall, big armed, someone who came from a big time school, someone who had lots of production, high wonderlick score, which is an indication to me, not of it's a book intelligence based on how suburban and white they are um, in terms of culturally relevant things that are baked into those tests, you know, cause like if you come from a predominantly white neighborhood, um, the types of things that you're going to learn in school, the type of sort resources that your schools have, these are things that are pounded into your brain pretty much from, you know, third grade on, you know, and I think for a lot of schools in black communities that are underfunded that, you know, that you end up having kids getting just, because of the state and the way they do things, pushing kids to that next level of like of grade, even if they haven't earned the grade, you know, um, you know, my daughter went to a high school like that in Athens, Georgia, that is just an awful high school. And, um, and I didn't want her to go there, but my mm-hmm. wife and I decided that she was, you know, she went to a great high school beforehand. And when they moved down and we got married that she'd be okay with it. Cause she could get a, a scholarship. She'd be fine. The, the school pretty much the preschool pretty much took one look at her realized what a waste of time it would be for her to be in the classroom and literally she spent most of her classroom time all day in the library just doing independent study mm-hmm. I mean that was like that's how bad the school was like and it used to not be a bad school but all the white people left the left the uh, the community um, once all the white baby boomers left the community to go to some bedroom suburban community and left it basically where you had poor people and black people who were black and poor or white and poor who, you know, in a school that was now underfunded and didn't have the opportunities to have the level of support because you didn't have as many two parent households where one person didn't work and could stay at home and do that. And I bring all that up because that feeds into the idea that 
this is cultural, you know, this is a, you know, and so most of your quarterbacks are white suburban kids who get, you know, special lessons, you know, private lessons, just like, you know, if you were, you know, in band, you could get trumpet right. lessons from somebody um, who, yep. you know, who could play, you could do the same thing. So I think what happens is it's unintentional oftentimes. I don't think, I think there may be a handful of teams that really just don't want to have a black quarterback, but I think that they're, far fewer of them than they were like, you know, in the Doug Williams era. Um, so I would say now it's more about, we want guys who are going to present themselves well. And whether you're a, a black person who would say that they, who comes from the perspective and saying, well, quarterbacks who talk like they're white people, which I don't even know, you know, a lot of people in the black community would say, what is that anyway? And I'm agree with them. It's just more like people who may not speak, the Queen's English in the way right. that, um, you, you know, that they find acceptable. Um, and oftentimes it's not thought of as black or white just as much as it, the way the pers person presents themselves. You look at a guy like Lamar Jackson, he's a dark-skinned black man who doesn't speak with the Queen's English the way that Russell Wilson does or that maybe Kyler Murray does. And I can see why there were a lot of teams that were probably turned off by his methods and also the way that he presented himself, which was wrong, you know, but that's how they probably did that. And as a result, they also bang on things that just don't fit that robo quarterback mold. So he does, does he have the strongest arm? No. Is he, you know, was he a guy that, you know, that when you look at, you know, the way he dressed, the way he talked, you know, the fact that his accuracy stats weren't strong, even though you could explain some of that. They're going to nitpick that stuff the same way they nitpicked Teddy Bridgewater and his skinny knees and all those things because Teddy was similar to Lamar in yep. that respect, you know, just not as, you know. So I would say what the common mistakes are is that GMs are thinking about that. the fa And all this boils down to is that GMs look at their quarterback and they think, what do fan what will fans get upset about? What will the media get upset about? Well, they're much more subconsciously likely to get upset and be virulently critical with us if we pick guys who don't have those bullet points I mentioned earlier. Um, because if we pick them early and they don't have that, then they're going to say we're so stupid for, for veering from this track. Whereas like at least these other guys that we pick, the Paxton Lynches, the Mitchell Trubisky's, they give us hope. They, you know, we're selling hope because these seem like sensible picks. Everyone seems to be on board with them because it fits the cultural match of what, of what we're subconsciously looking for. And I know this is kind of a deep explanation of all this, but it's like in order to, you know, the way that happens is that we know that NFL teams are selling hope. They're not selling yep. wins. Like, because if they were trying to just win to make money, then they wouldn't have this you know, revenue sharing agreement where the Cincinnati Bengals could give a flip whether they win or not uh, for the longest period of time because they were still selling tickets to their stadium and stay. And even if they didn't sell out, they were still getting what I would call as some sort of um, league welfare in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the fact that they didn't have to excel and they got extra help with that. You know, they were subsidized in that level. So because of that, the, the bl unintentional blowback is, is that teams literally are like, you know, I just have to sell to my to my fans that there's the hope 
that we're going to win and that we're that we're making justifiable cover our ass decisions and as long as we do that that buys us time because if i get fired from a by an owner but i pick the guy who fits what everyone else is picking other teams may hire me as a consultant or hire me in some way or college football mm-hmm. might hire me as opposed to if i'm the guy who stuck my neck out and hired Johnny, you know, drafted Johnny Manziel or drafted somebody else who didn't fit the mold as well as you would like to see and completely failed. And then yeah. other teams are going to say, oh, well, I'm a hack and I don't know what I'm doing and well, I'll never get that shot again. So it's not about getting fired. It's about getting rehired in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, that was all tremendous. Uh, just a, an incredible answer. Um, I think... Just to sort of build off that, like two points. One, we're talking about people that have mortgages to pay and kids to put through school. Yes. And so, like you said, if you draft Vernon Adams in the first round, like some people were clamoring for that year, you're not getting a second job. Forget getting fired. You're not getting that second job. Yeah. But if you draft Paxton Lynch, you're getting that second job. And so, like, I I think you have to remember that these aren't just – it's not Madden. It's not computers making decisions. It's people with mortgages and bills to pay. And so that's the first. And the second thing is leadership and character matters at the quarterback position, but not in the way that some of these front offices and ownership rooms think. They want the face of the franchise guy. But making a nice post-game appearance at a press conference podium doesn't translate to wins the guy that can walk into a huddle and command the attention and respect of the 10 guys in that huddle with him, that's the character and leadership that matters. And so I don't care or teams shouldn't care about the post game stuff, the press conference stuff, the face of the franchise stuff. They should care. Is this guy going to take command of this team's offense? And that is the leadership and character traits that matter. And that's what they should be focusing on. Too often they're focused on the whole face of the franchise thing to the point where it's become a Madden game, face of the franchise. No, it's the guy in the huddle. That's the guy that matters. Yeah, they t- often talk about them as being CEOs and I often say, no, they're right. more like operations directors. Or you can look at it from a military standpoint. And certainly with my kids who are all in the military, involved in the military and their experiences, especially my son who's been in combat, who's been in, you know, who's been in, um, you know, overseas and, you know, has been in highly stressful situations. He'll tell you, he's like, you know, there's the, there's the major who went to West Point or went to the, you know, went to an academy and, you know, has all the things that the, you know, that would look good on a podium to give, you know, an answer to the media. And then there's the sergeant who like doesn't present himself well in any way, shape or form, but the one that you're going to want to listen to and has the most experience is the sergeant, you know? And it's like, that's part of the issue is that's why it's down with ownership there. And as a result, it gets baked in. It's politically baked into your, your system. It's like, it's like review time. You know, when you do reviews for, for your organization that like, there are certain, certain places you can't go because you know, leadership above doesn't want it that way, even though, you know, it's the right way to go about it. So it gets baked in and, and trickles down to your scouts where they end up having to do certain things that really make no sense whatsoever because that's how they've always done it. And that's why you get some of these scouts who come on Twitter that get made fun of 
because they they come from that that's how we've always done it mentality and they haven't figured they haven't thought broad enough to think about what did they do wrong there because what they're doing is leveraging their NFLness you know they right. come in and they say I'm from the NFL we did everything you don't understand this is what this is how I'm going to get followers this is how I'm going to get you know notoriety is being able to tell everybody else that they don't know what they're talking about because I worked for a team and I understand this type of stuff. And while there's certain validity to the experiences they have, there's a great, tremendous amount of validity. There can also be a complete lack of perspective if you've gotten fired as an NFL scout and you were a low-level NFL scout for 15 years at the lowest level. You were basically a do as what you were told and you didn't, and maybe you weren't thinking from the, the broader perspective of what actually why some of the things are happening the way they are and why some of them are messed up and you know you can someone you know i would just say someone who if no one ever has done this with me but if someone came to me and said you don't know what you're talking about i'm a scout i was one for 15 years you've never even been a scout and i would say that's true i've talked to a lot of scouts though and what i hear is that you were the first entry level scout you were basically a entry level employee for 15 years i was an operations director for you know for 10 um and i certainly understand the dynamics and politics that go on in organizations and managing people and the decisions that have to go on far better than you ever will um right. and i can translate that to the nfl because the nfl isn't that unique of an organization, even though you think it is because you've never been anywhere else in the world and you've never seen anything right. else in the world. So that's all those things are part of the problem when it comes to why they make the decisions that they make. So, so listen, um, moving forward, you know, the other question we got, and it was a great one from the rock pile report who friends of ours from the Buffalo bills neighborhood, they want to know that, they, they were talking about how there's a historically high completion percentage rate that's been allowed this month. And they're wondering if it's correlated to the low rate of holding calls from officials. And if that's the case, one, you know, do you think that's the case? And two, if you think it is, how do defensive coordinators staunch the bleeding? Yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating question for my boys. Um, I don't know. I think completion percentages have been trending higher anyway, you know, and this was even last year. I mean, you're seeing guys finish the year, you know, 68, 69, 70, 71% uh, completion percentage. You know, those are pretty high numbers. And I, I think it has more to do with scheme and less to do with, you know, flags, I think, you know, because, the game is designed right now from an offensive perspective to identify mismatches, then exploit them, get guys into space, and get the ball out quickly. I mean, the game is played from zero and 10 yards downfield. You know, the days of the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica, are behind us. I mean, you're throwing it near the line of scrimmage, and you're relying on yardage after the catch for the most part. Not all everybody, but most people. And so that's going to lead to these higher completion percentages. Um, so I, I think it's more a function of scheme than anything else. I think teams are just trying to, especially when you have younger quarterbacks, as we're seeing more and more teams turn to, perhaps because of the talent, perhaps the economics of it, perhaps a combination of the two things, you want to give them easier reads and throws. And so I, I think that's it more than anything else. I think that's a great answer, Mark. And it's funny that you mentioned LaMonica. I'm wearing my Raiders hat today. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah. But um, 
I think a lot of it is an offshoot of that because because you're trying to get rid of the ball faster and because you're not playing from center as often, you're having shorter drops and quicker throws, which means you're even if you get beat quickly, you don't have to be as desperate to hold. I think offensive yeah. linemen inherently understand now that there's a there's a quicker window of when the ball's getting out. Um, so as and as a result of and also that the guys are mobile enough that they don't have to be as desperate about that. We have fewer um, Tom Brady's in the league who like while they can maneuver from pressure, you know that like if that ball's not out by the count of five, likely he's getting hit or he's throwing the ball away. Whereas with guys like Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, you can name a ton of them. You know, if the ball's not out after five seconds, you can you just need to look or start looking around to see where you can block the next guy and yeah. not worry about holding on to somebody because he can make the first or second man miss. Um, and I think that that's the difference right now with it. Is there a way to stop it? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I think we've just entered a new reality in terms of how this works out. The only way that we would staunch it is that there are teams the team it is a copycat league and the best teams tend to run the football i mean there's there may be one top notch like we throw it all around the yard kansas city chiefs and then then there's teams like baltimore and the 49ers and um you know and even seattle who's thrown it a lot but they still run the ball um, you know, even though they're running it a whole heck of a lot more, New England's running the heck out of the football. Yep. You know, th- these are all teams that have done that, and they've all been deep into the playoffs or appeared in Super Bowls based on those types of things. And they know that because they're looking at opposing defenses that play nickel in a response to, as their base set. And go, let's you know, let's test these linebackers, let's test these safeties. You know, let's test guys who, you know. Uh, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> I was going to make fun of somebody, but the, I'm not doing that. So anyway, man. You, there we go. So yeah, I go. think it's so a good like, question. So Matt, I spent pretty much all of last week and portions of the week prior to that telling anybody that would listen that you have to watch Jacksonville. You have to watch Gardner Minshew. You have to watch LaVisca Chenault. This is such a fun team to watch. Jay Gruden's dialing up good stuff. And then they laid an egg on Thursday night and Minshew Mania hit a new low. Why? Chris Conley. I'm going to blame it on Chris Conley. Hey, guys. Yeah, that's good. Done. I'm there with you. I'm, I'm, Chris Conley dropped a, a, a boatload of passes. Um, I think this team kind of got out of rhythm. They didn't have Chenault. And Chenault provides – well, they did have Chenault. They didn't have Chark, excuse me. Yeah. But they didn't really use Chenault the way that – I saw in the past, you know, and, and part of that is that I felt like they were, they were a little more conservative with him. And because Chark wasn't there, the combination of Chark and Chenault really opened up this offense. And there's a lot of scripted things that they did with those two guys that were kind of like, um, you know, pre kind of pre-planned scripted kind of plays that they didn't seem to go to as much or with what they did, they tried to go to with Chark and, I mean, with Conley and Conley just didn't do it. I think it was an off night more than anything. Um, yeah. But the but if they are going to get consistently exposed, it will be because they're um, the scripted. They're, they go away from the scripted stuff, or the the scripted stuff gets solved by the defenses early, and the team seems a little lost. But it, you know, momentum is a real thing. I don't care what anybody has to say. Yes. And Chris Chris Conley was a momentum stopper. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with all that. I think that's all uh, pretty darn accurate. I, I, I think, look, 
when you watch this Jaguars offense, even before Thursday night, like Jay Gruden has done a good job at sort of getting that first read open. When that first read isn't there, then like with other young quarterbacks, things start to get a little dicey. Although I think Minshew's better than some of the other guys in his class. Um, but I do think a lot of it was just they had an off night. They had a chance to get back in that game. You had the wide open uh, throw on the zero blitz situation that was a bust, and they couldn't connect. You had the drops from Conley. The game script got away from them as a result of it. You know, So they started to have to be more of a one-dimensional team. They had to get off from the scripted stuff, had to get off from the things that they want to do, the run game stuff, the LaVisca stuff, and it just kind of spun out of control. Um, I don't think that that's cause for concern. But look, this is a team they weren't, we were not expecting much from. And if the game script gets away from them, as a result, they're probably going to struggle. Yeah, I don't think they're going to struggle against Carolina this weekend. No, no, no. I think they're going to see a big rebound. Now, the player that a lot of people seem to be like saying, you're making excuses for him, is Drew Brees. Is Drew Brees washed up, Mark? He's not washed up. Um, but... I think this is kind of who he is. You know, he's a West Coast quarterback that is deadly accurate to most, if not all areas of the field. Um, But we're seeing a bit of the arm strength slippage. Even when he pushed the ball downfield against Green Bay, you saw watching that game, guys having to work back to the ball, guys having to make sort of sliding catches, you know, he's much more effective working underneath in those areas of the field. And as somebody that watched Tom Brady, who faced similar questions for years, you know, that's where they want to be. That's where they're very effective. Um, When you get sort of deeper down the field, you start to see some of those struggles. Teams want to take that stuff away as a result. And so you're forced into a situation of trying to do things that you, you know, might not be best at, but I don't think he's washed. I think this is a function in a sense right now of they need Michael Thomas because he opens up so much of what they do. And without him, they're struggling to get the passing game going. They're struggling to get Emmanuel Sanders open. Troy Quan Smith has done some nice things, but it's not the same. And teams can sort of key on Alvin Kamara. And, you know, we saw the long catch and run touchdown. You have to have plays like that as a result because they're going to try to do everything they can to take Kamara away. But no, I don't think Breeze is washed at all. Yeah, I don't either. I did a video I put out last week. It's about 20 minutes. that looked at two different games and then looking at the Green Bay game. And here's my question to people who are like going to say he's just not someone, um, you know, he, that the arm strength is an issue. Yeah, certainly there are some throws that from – you know, from the opposite hash to the far sideline that guys have had to come back to or that they've had to drop to their knees to get. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But that's always been kind of Drew Brees to me. It's like not a huge slip. Um, but what I do find interesting is that nobody's saying, nobody's answering the question that I pose, which is why did Green Bay drop seven and nine, 15 yards in the field and further on a consistent basis if they were not worried about Drew Brees' arm and Drew Brees' yeah. ability to go downfield because Drew Brees has always been good downfield, even if he hasn't had a powerful arm. But if I'm a defense and I think Drew Brees is washed up, I'm playing man-to-man and making him beat me with those types of throws. I'm going to say, yeah. go, you know, come, you know, come get it. You know, I don't believe you can do it. 
Instead, they were dropping, they dropped like three quarters of their defense half on a regular basis, 15 yards and beyond. And Breeze is like, you're going to do that? I'm going to throw it to Kamara. I'm going to throw it underneath. I mean, I've got one of the best after catch players in the history of the league. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it to him. And that's what he did. And they were in the game. So, you know, to me, it is, you're right. Michael Thomas is a big part of that. And then looking at that tape, one of the things that you'll see is that, um, you know, some of these receivers, Deontay Harris, great return specialist. Maybe he's a promising receiver, but not running the right routes in terms of like, you know, where he runs his own route and he continues to run through the open space and, and he gets thrown behind. Traquan Smith, um, you know, some issues there. And he benefited from Emmanuel Sanders. They were, Sean Payton was being smart, lining them up on the same side of the field and running, you know, versions of like a switch route, you know, basically right. to get Traquan Smith open. So when you see Traquan Smith wide open, um, just know that you're thanking Emmanuel Sanders uh, uh, at least a third of the time, you know, yeah. for that. And Jared Cook being Jared Cook, you know, like making a spectacular play at one moment and then like not running the right break on a sail route where he, he breaks it further to, you know, you know, closer to the the um, quarterback then further away because he didn't read the, he didn't accurately assess that the safety was on the opposite side of the field and not over top. So he didn't angle it. And Drew Brees is left there after the throw, literally pointing the way you'd see, you know, every quarterback, you know, I'm sure you've done it yourself, Mark, where you're like angling, like this is the angle I wanted you to do. You know, the, the, there were multiple plays like that in, in the past two games in the first two games where their receivers just weren't on the same page with him. Um, and you would have been looking at 370, 380-yard days um, as a result of some of that and higher completion percentages, which you would normally see with Breeze. So yeah, they miss in Michael Thomas because some of their players just aren't on the same page and used to doing some of this stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm, yeah, so for me, Drew Brees is not washed up. It's just his receivers are need a little bit more acclimation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's all accurate. Uh, your video was was fantastic on him. Now we're going to talk about two quarterbacks that I don't think anybody would call washed up right now. Um, <laughs> two of the more fun, enjoyable guys to watch in the game. We're going to do it this way. I'm going to ask you about my guy. You're going to ask me about your guy. So, Matt, your thoughts on Cam Newton? Well, I like the fact that Cam Newton is able to stretch the field a little bit more with Julian Edelman and other receivers the way that Tom Brady can't. I love the fact that He's healthy and he knows it, and he's basically um, knocking over defensive backs, you know, as a runner. It's just fantastic to watch him. He's kind of playing with a he's playing with a chip on his shoulder. You can absolutely see that. Not even what he said. Like he wouldn't have had to say anything all off season. And watching the way that he's just like, just get that, just get away from me. I'm just gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna bully you. He's the only bully quarterback in the league. And he's yeah. and he's doing it to that level, and he's throwing. You know, he's making good use out of Nikhil Harry where he can, um, and I think that overall he's just playing. You know, he's playing pretty sound football, um, and he's able to stretch the field a little bit more, even though he has a much more limited supply of skill players than what Tom Brady did. Yeah. I, I think that's all accurate. Um, they are able to stretch the field a bit more. They are able to be a bit more vertical in the passing game. You know, against Seattle, you're seeing them call mirrored out and ups. 
with a post route over the middle from Edelman. Um, so it's been a fun passing game to watch. It's different. They can, instead of those 10, 12, 13 play drives you're used to seeing from Brady, they can get on you in three or four plays. And so that's been fun to watch. He's been fun to watch. I have questions about the guys around him, um, but he's making it work because I think two things could be true. This could be a, you know, not the most talented wide receiver room. And yet one of the more talented ones that he's had to play with, because it's not like Carolina did a great job putting talent around him. And so I think it's fun to see. I think the league's fun when Cam is having fun, you know, when he's celebrated and when he's sliding down benches in a response to something that Keel Harry said to him um, and getting turned into a meme. It's fun. It's great to see. So I'm, I'm happy to see it. Yeah, and he opens up the run game far more than Tom Brady ever could. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Because two things. One, you have to worry about him. You didn't have to worry about 12. Yep. And so you might have to spy him. You might want to mush. Like, there's all that. There's the scramble stuff. But there's also the fact that you might have to think about playing too high. You yeah. didn't really have to think about that with Brady because you're not too worried about him beating you over the top. You might be a little bit more worried about Newton doing that, which, again, opens up the run game. So, yeah, he he definitely adds that element. And this Patriots running back room, which is notoriously tough to predict from a fantasy standpoint, they were pretty impressive last week against the Raiders. Yeah, I saw you. I saw a little hat tip to J.J. Taylor from you. Little that hat you, tip you know. to J.J. Taylor. Look, they, I, I wrote about it both over at uh, – I talked about it on my show. I wrote about it at Football Guys in the, the roundtable this week. They had a little Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside with Michelle and Taylor. It was making me think of the 1940 Armies teams, which no people, I did not live. I was not alive then. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. I just like football history. That's all. Okay. Well, we won't tell anybody that Mark's older than me. No one would believe it anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with that in mind, you know, talking about an old man in the league at this point, he's starting to get a little older, but he sure isn't playing older. Um, well, at least in the brains is Russell Wilson. Tell me about my, about my guy. Look, I mean, he's just so much fun to watch too. And I did a quick video on him this week. I mean, the touch in the deep ball has always been there. Um, but I think people on a more national level are starting to realize it. You know, the way he drops throws into the bucket, the way he makes it impossible to defend. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, in military tactics, mortar rounds are terrifying. It's because you, you it just drops out of the sky and you just you can't see it coming. And, and that's what he does. He throws mortar rounds sometimes. But the other thing that makes him so difficult to defend is the stuff we always talk about, which is the fact that, and we just had the passing of Gail Sayers, who notoriously said once, I just need 18 inches of daylight. And Wilson is that as a quarterback. Because if you take one false step as a defensive lineman in your rush lane, he's going to find that crease, exploit it, and then make your secondary pay downfield. He's one of these quarterbacks that doesn't scramble to run. He scrambles to throw because he keeps those eyes downfield. He's going to make those small missteps bury you as a defense. And so you put that together, it's incredibly tough to defend. Even tougher now is that, as everybody says, the hashtag, which is just overwrought at this point, let Russ cook. Yes, they are. And the results are pretty tasty if you're a Seahawks fan. That's great. Well, listen, I'm sitting here looking at my timeline and our friend Ross Tucker 
has Greg Cosell on, and he's asking, who exactly is Broncos starting quarterback Brett Rippon? So oh, I'm no. going to call an audible because, listen, we, we love we love Greg Cosell, and he we owe him a debt for his op, the way Absolutely. that he's done analysis. But I'm just going to make fun of Greg a little bit because – Russell Wilson is a guy that took him about six years to actually give him his due. Um, if he's gone that, I don't know if he still has. I still he, he still may be talking about how they have to do things in the pocket to make Russell better than what he really is. I don't know if he's still going on that shtick or not. But I do know one thing, that if I were to make a parody video and put Greg Crosell in it, he would play Sir Mix-a-Lot. And he oh, would be, I like big arms, and I cannot oh, lie. Man. You know, because, you know, Ryan Lindley, you know, and Paxton yep. Lynch, he loves those big arm guys. And we know Brett Rippon isn't that. So Ooh. I can just completely anticipate what Greg's probably saying, down to the point that if I could do a good imitation of him, I could, you know, I would I would do so. But I'd have to listen to an interview again. But I know he's got some Cosellisms that he'll be thrown in there. So let's do the other point of view of that with the person I know, with two people who actually liked him, but one I know who really built that bandwagon, and that's you, Mark. Yeah. And look, I, th- I remember a couple of nights, a couple of seasons ago, anytime Carson once would play in a primetime game, I was – terrified to watch because I felt like my reputation was on the line. And I'm certainly feeling that right now with Brett Rippon. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, when I talked about Brett Rippon early, when we were talking about the quarterback position, the things that we used to think matter um, with Nick Mullins, you know, the little things, the anticipation, the manipulation, the accuracy, the ability to hand in there in the pocket on third and seven. And after you've adjusted the defense and called out the protection and identified the mic and slid the protection and all those things, even if the blitz then doesn't get picked up, even though you put your offense and the guys around you in a position to pick it up, you can still hand in there and make a throw in an out route to move the chains. And that's uh, literally a play that Brett Rippon had against San Diego State. I did multiple videos about that. Um, I'm excited to see him tonight, though, because I think those little things, even though they might matter less and even though teams might start to realize that athleticism and dropping the arm angle and things like that matter more in today's NFL, there's still a room for that. You know, that's a reason why Nick Mullins is going to be a starting quarterback on Sunday night. It's because of the things we talked about with Nick Mullins. And I think Brett Rippon has those traits as well. If you want a guy that can – drill in a seam route against a Tampa two coverage with velocity, get it over the middle of the field runner. But before the safeties get down, you know, maybe Brett Rippon is not your guy, but he has enough functional arm talent to be an NFL quarterback. And he's an experienced passer that will do things at the quarterback position that other guys, other peers of his aren't able to do yet. Some of those things I just talked about because he was doing them for years at Boise state. And so you know, I might, my phone continues to melt all day with family members, let alone, you know, Twitter DMs about what do you expect from him tonight? You know, I, I think he could have a good night. And I think he might show on film against the defense and NFL defense the reasons why myself and others were high on him. It's that he does do the little things that I think still matter at the position and he does those well. Yeah. And I'm, see, I just, maybe I'm just stubborn. Well, I am stubborn and I know I am and that's fine. But like, am I intractable? That's the question really is, right. uh, <laughs> but I'm stubborn about the points that you're making about, Oh, well, things maybe have changed that they're looking more for the athlete. Cause if Lamar Jackson was just an athlete, 
then he would be what everyone thought he was in that yes. San Diego yes. game. And, yep. and, you know, it, and I'm sorry. I know that Josh Allen is playing better, but he's playing better because he has two receivers who are really good. Um, and, yeah. and he is playing better, but he's still making, he, I, as I said on Twitter last week, he's like Curly in the Three Stooges move, um, shorts when they play Pop Goes the Weasel and he loses his mind. Like there's somebody in the Bill Stadium who's playing Pop Goes the Weasel at least like three to four times a game where he does something that's completely counter to what you've seen with him on the field. He loses his mind and you're lucky to get away intact when it yeah. happens. And that's not, to me, it's like, I, I'm good for him that he's having a statistically strong season. And, you know, I'm, you know, good for Lance Zerline if he feels like he owes people an apology for saying that, you know, that he was wrong about Josh Allen. But all I'm saying is, is that I'd like to still wait and see. Because, like, and I certainly see po positives with his game. But, you know, when it comes, the thing that people overlook, and it goes with the people like Lance, who, you know, is, you know, who does a lot of his work, mimics what the NFL is about. And that's going to give you a true sense. He's a very good, true sense of what the NFL is about type of evaluator he's a very good evaluator and and have a lot of love for him but the difference is is that the mistakes that those guys make the gms make and if he's rooted in that kind of thinking is that those guys will get that kind of savvy through experience and my answer is no they won't some of those things are far too ingrained and you don't provide enough development for actually for them to gain that. So unless yeah. you're going to become a developmental league um, and you're going to bench players like you used to when Chuck Knoll benched Terry Bradshaw 8 million times or yep. Marty Schottenheimer benched Drew Brees multiple yep. times who credits Schottenheimer for teaching him how to be the quarterback he is, you know, then you're going to bench them. The first time you bench him is going to be the last time they they're a starter in your team and probably not even have a conversation with them as to why they got benched, which is like, not developmental at all. It's just completely piss poor management. So it's like when you look at it from that perspective, yeah, this is this is a situation where if they don't have that development, then they're never going to learn those soft skills of quarterbacking, which are the most important skills because if you're in the league, then those hard skills, you have a baseline level of those things. And if you right. don't, then you screwed up as a scouting um, group, you know? And yeah. the decision makers. Everyone has the baseline to play if they're on an NFL team or should. Rippin has the baseline. It's those higher level qualities that people say, oh, well, you know, the the big arm blockhead's going to learn how to do that. Yeah, okay. Well, and, and, and I think to build off the Josh Allen point, which is a tremendous one, did anybody see? Was there any evidence, was there anything under the sun that would lead you to believe that Josh Allen at any point in his time in the NFL could become a timing and rhythm and anticipation passer? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. But that's kind of what he is now, which speaks to what they've done with him. Sure. Because Brian Dable has done a very good job with him. Yes. And, and so, you know, this idea that, you know, people owe Allen an apology – I get why it's a nice thing to say. No, even his biggest fans thought he was going to be somebody you drop into a vertical passing game 
and he would throw the ball downfield and push it downfield and hit home runs. He was never going to be a high completion percentage guy. He was never going to be a time and a rhythm and anticipation guy. Like that wasn't it. Even those people that saw success for him or people that said this is the way he would work like me that said, look, I don't like him. He's my QB5, but if it's going to work, it's a downfield vertical-based Eric Coriel, Daryl LaMonica guy. That's not what's happening. They've developed him. But we can't bet on development from a league that refuses to develop people and quarterbacks the right way. And so and there's four, it, it's there, worked out. Yeah, There's four plays from the Rams game right now that I guarantee you, if I ask people, if we did a poll and said, okay, we're in the playoffs and you're facing the, you know, the Tom Brady era New England Patriots or the Baltimore Ravens, you know, defense or the Kansas right. City Chiefs and their intelligent coordinator and team. Do you think the Bills are going to survive the playoffs with these types of plays, these four plays you saw in the Rams game? And the answer would be, hell no, you wouldn't. Right. So good for them that Josh Allen is a, is a fantasy quarterback now of note in terms of throwing the ball. But I'm sorry, prove it to me that you're a, that you're actually a Super Bowl contending leader. That you're a guy you want to count on because right now when the things when the chips are down or you're supposed to preserve a lead or or they put pressure on you, he's still a cheap suit. He's still the guy that threw a scramble drill go route to his double covered fullback in the playoffs last year. Yeah. He like, threw a he threw a scramble play double covered one to his tight end that yeah. was like Inter, that was basically intercepted you yeah. know i mean he still th- he still runs around with the ball like two feet behind him you know breaking tackles and taking on people i mean like i i know it's a different league but i i still know that the nf the afc north still thinks they they still play like it was 15 years ago on occasion ask jerry judy um yeah. <laughs> and devin yeah. bush um just, I, I want to see the Pittsburgh Steelers lick their chops with Josh Allen because Josh Allen will not be on the field with, after some of the things that happens there um, because yeah. they will tattoo him. That I, I, So I'm not apologizing about Josh Allen. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I'm intractable and that's fine, but I, no. So yeah. speaking, of, speaking of defenses, who's a defender who impressed you this month? Oh, I mean, that's a tough one. Um, partly because I focus on offense so much, because, sure. you know, the defensive side, no. Ah, okay. uh, no, I mean, honestly, look, a, a guy that I've seen and a guy that I think is doing well on a team that is struggling is Darius Slay. And oh, yeah. w- what's interesting is this is a prime example of what teams often don't do because, you know, where Darius Slay is at his best, when he was at his best in Detroit was when he was allowed to play off coverage, you know, off man, catch man techniques and man coverage situations or cover three, use his eyes, use his mind and then break on throws and click and close. And Matt Patricia, for whatever reason, you tell me, I don't know, insists on playing more press cover one, even though he might have not have the horses to do it. Well, what does Jim Schwartz want his corners to do? It's, Play off coverage, off cover one, catch man, cover three. Let stuff happen in front of you, break on it, keep it in front of you, and make tackles. And even though the Eagles are struggling and they're 0 2 and 1, and our good friend Michael Kiss is hoping that they win the division with an 0 2 and 14 record, which is mathematically possible, um, <laughs> he's played well. He's played well for a team that is struggling. And so I'll say Darius Slay. Okay. I'm going to go with another cornerback as well, Mike Hilton of the Pittsburgh Steelers, yes. who yeah. is just like, his blitzing is unbelievably good. 
Um, he's someone that takes on the run and he'll take on, I mean, he'll take on big dudes to like work through and work around them. And I know that, um, you know, everyone's favorite clown bets on, um, <laughs> you know, on Twitter, who's like the, who's like the fool to catch the wise. Like right yeah. now, his tweet says, taking a statistical analysis class just this quarter, PFF. just again, yeah. uh, once again, own PFF, yeah. you know? So, so Betts was showing some Mike Hilton stuff, you know, as well. And talking about how they allowed them to kind of use him almost in a linebacker function to play some linebacker Sam and weak side over type of stuff. Um, that allows him to take away the run. And he's just such a nice Swiss army knife of a player. And yeah, I mean, it's been notable. So he's absolutely that one. Yeah. And he had a blitz against Denver where he hit himself behind the defensive line. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like that kickoff return. I think the jets had a couple of years ago, Chuck Zada, uh, who's not writing about football anymore. And I wish he would, who wrote about the kicking game highlighted the fact they had their kick returner, what are their two kick returners like lay down in the end zone to camouflage his uniform in the end zone paint and it failed spectacularly but on this play hilton like hides himself behind a guy in front of him and nobody sees him coming just absolutely tremendous i, I would like to have an animated show where we have characters donald after zada and adam harstead and have them meet oh the yes that would be pretty good zada man i i miss that guy right about football but He's a new dad now, so he's kind of got his hands full. That makes sense. Okay, so Mark, listen, serious question now. In terms of food choices, mm-hmm. you know, you have three choices, mm-hmm. Vietnamese, Mexican, or German. Which would be your first choice and why? These are three cuisines that I absolutely love. They're three cuisines that I like to make on my own. I've made pho. Um, I've made, you know, all sorts of Mexican dishes. I've made, you know, schnitzel. Mm-hmm. I've made sauerbraten. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to choose, I'm honestly going to choose German. Um, wow. it's a very comfort food thing for me. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we spent a, a long weekend at a place called the Bavarian Inn in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, small little town. And it's a Bavarian Inn. Like it's very German and they have a restaurant on site where we ate at every single night. In fact, we decided to extend our stay one more night to have one more meal there. And it's authentic German cuisine with the, you know, various kinds of sausages, um, the schnitzel, the sauerbraten, the spatzel, and all of that stuff. And I love it. And, you know, my wife is Eastern European. She's got Czech roots, um, which is obviously a similar cuisine. And so it's a comfort food for me. So as much as I love all three, and as much as I love to make all three, it's German. Nice. I, I wasn't expecting that. That's cool. That You get surprised every day. For me, it's Vietnamese, yeah. hands down. Yeah. I like German food. I like Mexican food. But Vietnamese, I love, I like noodles. So anytime that I can have vermicelli noodles, vermicelli noodles like, um, you know, with lemongrass. And I like the aromatics of the herbs that they use, you yeah. know, mint and cilantro and lemongrass. Lemongrass, yes. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, I'm a, I love the banh mi sandwich, you know? And, yes. and so the, some of the nod to some French cuisine and the, the way that that's kind of influenced in there, but also just the, you know, and they make great curries. Like you mm-hmm. can find, if you can go to, I'm a big curry fan. So when you can, Vietnamese version of a curry is actually quite tasty, sweet, like the coconut based kind of curry that they use with that. Um, so yeah, hands down, like there was a place in Athens that was literally across the street from campus that I would go almost daily 
to, to eat there um, for lunch. And, um, you know, my buddy, too, who was the owner there, he, uh, he used to run casinos in Atlantic City and, and Las Vegas, but he, but, and actually in China a little, in Hong Kong, too. And then he ended up buying a restaurant and getting a restaurant industry. And his, his family ran restaurants in Renton, Washington, just north of Seattle, um, near Doug's neighborhood. Um, I think he oh, yeah. moved, I think he moved back there. So, you know, I'm I, and when I go to Seattle, I, I'm hoping I'll get a chance to see him. But yeah, that's my that's my thoughts. Oh, fantastic. So, Matt, you know, you've written a lot about, you know, the, the emotion and the passion of, you know, not just being a fan of a team, but even in what we do. And so who introduced you to a sport or sports in general and helped foster that passion that you've written so eloquently about? Uh, by my mom's mom, my grandmother, actually. My grandmother was like a huge baseball and boxing fan. She loved oh. boxing. And that was probably the first sport that I really got into was was boxing and watching athletes like Muhammad Ali and Ernie Shavers and George Foreman and, um, you know, and, you know, Frazier and she would talk about those fights with so much passion and like a level of knowledge that I wouldn't have really expected, you know, when I think back on it. And there was, and she always liked watching football. And she watched football and she'd talk about football. You know, you couldn't live in Cleveland and not be a Browns fan, um, you know, at that time. So I think my love of sports really actually came from her more than anybody just because of the way that she, she talked about it. And it wasn't like we'd go all like, into it a great deal but we played a lot of games together she was a she was a card player mm -hmm. and she played a, you know we i learned a lot of card games through her and she would um both my grandparents actually would both my grandmothers would were like actually play for money would actually like me oh, wow. which was kind of funny so like we'd play a penny a point or nickel a point or things like that and so there was always that level of that kind of going on so games and sports were kind of much intertwined and so i would say that was the person who really got me, I think when it came to sports, generated that passion. Um, and from a football, I don't know whether, I mean, with my dad, it was just like, he and I played catch a lot and he'd teach me routes, you know, at, you know, just in the backyard from the time I was like five or six years old, was like showing me routes. But I, I you know, if it was just football, I would say it was just um, osmosis through living in Cleveland, Ohio. If it was sport yeah. in general, it was my grandmother. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, beautiful answer there, Matt. Um, for me, um, you know, sport in general, I mean, look, my, my dad was my first baseball coach. And so, you know, a passion that I have for not just baseball, but now coaching my own son um, comes from my dad. My mom taught me how to throw a spiral. Um, so some of what I, you know, did as a quarterback, I learned from my mom. Um, but I also want to shout out my mom's dad, my grandfather, who, you know, after serving in World War II, um, I've got his d-day pen you know framed along with some of his other stuff um on the wall here in my office um comes back to the boston area and one of the first things he did in the 40s was to get season tickets to the red sox and wow. you know he had in the second section behind third base so you've got you know the you know front like 30 rows or so then there's a big aisle then that next set of section the third base grandstand you know seats in the front of that row of that section um from the 40s until the end of the 80s and you know, you name a big game in Red Sox history, basically before, you know, their dynasty run when they finally get rid of the tickets in the 90s. Um, somebody in my family was at it 
you know, 67 Impossible Dream Team or obviously this game six of 75, which is typically what people think about um, when it comes to the Boston Red Sox. My mom and my aunt, her sister, were there. They were at that game. And, That's you know, awesome. those were family seats. And my grandfather would love telling the stories about when I was a baby. You know, they they had two seats, but my mom and my grandfather and I would go and I would just sit in his lap. Um, or if, you know, there was an extra seat, he would yell at everybody to move down because he knew everybody. And, you know, an old Italian guy uh, would just yell at him, we got another customer tonight. And, you know, they'd make a seat for me. And that sort of kindled just a love of sports, like you said, in general, a love of competition. And I had some of my, you know, I had a very, very happy childhood. I mean, I've been a very, very lucky guy in, in so many ways. And some of my happiest memories were with my grandfather. I mean, I remember it was, I think, the 90 ALCS against the Oakland A's. And that's the way it works, especially at Fenway, such a small park. In the playoffs, even if you have season tickets with good seats, you get bumped to the bleachers because they have to have the corporate seats and stuff. And so there's myself. I'm in sixth grade at the time and my grandfather, who's, you know, an older guy um, doing a steroids chant at Jose Canseco on a Tuesday afternoon because everybody else was doing it. And I look back on those days with such fondness. And that certainly like kindled, you know, a passion for sports. Um, and then obviously, look, the guy became my greatest, my biggest fan. I mean, obviously my parents too, but I hit one over the fence home run in my entire life playing baseball. It was my freshman year, my first game that freshman year in high school, my first at bat. I was a leadoff hitter. I was counted on to hit singles and steal bases. And I swung at a pitch over my head and somehow muscled it over the left field fence. <laughs> and the only face of the, in the stands I recognized was his, my grandfather's. That's and so, awesome. um, yeah, he kindled that passion in sports for me and, you know, obviously he then started watching me play football in high school and in college and came to some of my games. And so, yeah, my parents, obviously, but my grandfather. You know, I'll add one other person to it because from a football standpoint, um, I'd be remiss. I, you know, I had, you know, my father lived in, in Denver um, and I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. So my mom thought it was a good idea to get like the big brother, little sister organization mm -hmm. involved with me early on. So I had a... I had a big brother by the name of Gary Hoffman, who was an attorney in Cleveland, Ohio. Haven't been in touch with him probably for 40 years now. Um, but he was he was my big brother after a couple mm. of failed attempts with some other folks who just, you know, basically weren't really that active. Um, but he was a he was just he was a law student just getting out of law school and just starting his his career. And, you know, he would he took me to my first Browns game oh, at wow. Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Um, against Don Shula's Dolphins, and wow. the Browns won in overtime. And that was the Cardiac Kids era yep. um, of Cleveland. Brian Sight. Yeah, Brian Sight, Reggie Rucker, all those guys, um, the Pruitts. And it was like, it was it was fantastic. Just the, yeah. you know, to see the stadium just kind of, to feel the stadium literally like shaking and yeah. the fans and how how intense everything was and just, being there and that whole atmosphere and how much joy and how much fun we had even like right and he was like a broke law student you could just you yeah. know at that time you know and we would i remember just riding around in his broke ass car like and we had somewhere to go bowl or do something like that and the browns game would be on or we'd be li or listening to otis anderson have his debut 
and like have like a huge week against the Cowboys for the yeah. for the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, and things like that. And just listening to the football on the radio, even and the excitement and passion he had, actually was probably part of the reason why I had it. So shout out to if anybody knows Gary Hoffman, who's an attorney in Cleveland, Ohio, um, or if you're by off chance anybody you know who knows him's listening, just you know, big thanks wow. to him. Big big wow. thanks to him. Had a major influence in my life. That's so, a great yeah. story. Yeah. So, what would you do for a living if football analysis didn't exist? Or went away, but in some fantasy scenario, you had the means to get the training and job placement in that new field. And however the way that was, not that, you know, because I always hear you go, I'll be working at Home Depot or at Lowe's. That's, that's my it, common joke. You, that's I mean, your common I'll joke. say this. Look, I'm sure it's hell not going to go back to being a lawyer. I'm sure it's hell not going to do that. And right. a lot of people might be like, why? That's easy. It's just like, no, look, I mean, I've been open and honest about it. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be. Honestly, I don't know if I'd be alive if I were still practicing law right now. I just, yeah. I just don't. It, it was a bad, it was a bad situation for me, and I'm so thankful that I made the changes I did, and I'm so thankful that I had the support of my family, you know, my immediate family, my my parents, my in laws, and then people like you who gave me a shot, Matt. I, like seriously. Um, so if suddenly, let's just say hypothetically, the NFL had to stop playing games. And I had to find something to do as a result of that. I think right now I'd like to go learn about video game design and development. I mean, that's because, what my son's doing. Really? Yeah. Very cool. Because you and I have talked about it. And it was funny, Matt, this week when somebody noticed and almost, I don't want to say called you up, but was surprised to realize that you have a depth and wealth of Skyrim knowledge because not a lot of people know, I do, how often you play Skyrim? Yeah, and, and and it's and it's true for me. Like I last night, my my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, has been telling me for a while, you should play this game Stardew Valley. It's this simple, and it looks almost like Zelda, even though it's on Xbox, where you inherit your grandfather's farm, and you're somebody that's burnt out, working a corporate life. And since you've inherited it, your grandfather left you this letter, like you will someday perhaps get burnt out. And this might be what you need because this is what it did for me. And so you go off to this farm in Stardew Valley. And I spent last night after working chopping wood in a video game mm. to collect wood. Like that's what I did for like an hour. And it was legitimately a common hour of my life. And so I would try to learn video game design and development because it's such a simple concept but I'm fascinated by it. So yeah, that's what I do. That's cool. I I really don't have a great answer because like the, you know, there's a part of me that would say I'd want to play music, but I don't think I'd want to play music for a living. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to practice and play music just for fun as much as I possibly can. So, you know, the, you know, some answers that come to mind are like, I guess, driving uber so that i could do that you know it seems like you can make some good money doing that but honestly not enough for what i need um right um i would probably say it sounds weird but i'd probably i'd be interested in maybe doing private investigation um really yeah um just because i think that the skills that i have in terms of um process oriented looking at things and kind of using balancing intuition with problem solving um would be would be an interesting way of going about doing that um but 
probably the, the real answer is, is I'd probably try and I'd probably try, um, I'd probably go back to doing some level of writing. You know, it would yeah. probably be, it would probably, you know, try either to get into some entertainment writing um, and going from that fashion. The the real answer is that I would be driving Uber because all the things really? that I just mentioned that, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to get jobs from doing any of that. So, um, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, that or short of just doing something illegal and I, I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> can't say that on it. I can't. I mean, I, look, I, I think part of it is because we're doing what we'd want to do yeah. right now. You know? Yeah. I mean, and, and we're lucky in the sense that we get to do that. So, I mean, I guess if I guess if I knew that, like, in two years that I could, you know, I could play rhythm changes at, you know, at 250 beats a minute and just ace it and sound like Chris Potter and, you know, and, you know, Michael Brecker and a bunch of other people combined. Yeah, I'd be a jazz yeah. musician, but they ain't getting work right now. Um, and no. by the way, I will bring this up. There are some people getting work right now. And a, a marketing guy mentioned this to me. So I do want to bring this up on this show and let people know that in Nashville, there is the Nashville Jazz Workshop. It's Jazz Mania 2020. And it's going virtual this year. And... Um, you know, it's free to attend, but donations are appreciated and it would help the musicians, even something as low as 10 bucks. So if you're a fan of that kind of music, as I am, and I know a lot of you are who are who are readers of the RSP, you can go to jazzmania.nashvillejazz.org, jazzmania.nashvillejazz.org, and you can donate and get a chance to check out what they're doing and you'll be helping out some people, some artists and, you know, the arts tend to suffer a lot. Um, when we have these types of economy issues as well as health pandemic type of things, anything that that impacts people, the, the arts community tends to really suffer the brunt of it. So just wanted to bring that up and, you know, listen, this was a fun show as always. And, you know, Mark is always artful with his answers and and skillful in terms of his technical stuff. And and I don't care what anybody says after tonight with Brett Rippon. You don't have to question anything about about your skills <laughs> with quarterbacks, you know. And if someone seriously, I don't know, you, you weren't serious about it, but still, no, if anyone know. else takes it too seriously, lighten up, that Francis. That's all I'll We're say. talking about a game, kids. Yep, We're exactly. talking about a game. So on behalf of Mark Schofield, you can find him at Mark Schofield. I'm Matt Waldman. You can find me at Matt Waldman. And we appreciate, you know, just you listening and and giving us the feedback you do and being as supportive as you have been and we hope you guys have a wonderful week and weekend